Turn again in your Bible, please, and we read again this simple portion of Judges chapter 8, a text we undertook on last week, want to continue this week. Judges chapter 8 and beginning at verse 22, the section that we have interest in today, verses 22 through 27. Then the men of Israel said unto Gideon, Rule thou over us, both thou and thy son, and thy son's son also. For thou hast delivered us, thou hast delivered us from the hand of Midian. And Gideon said unto them, I will not rule over you, neither shall my son rule over you, the Lord shall rule over you. And Gideon said unto them, I would desire a request of you, that you would give me every man the ring earrings of his prey. For they had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. And they answered, We will willingly give them. And they spread a garment and did cast therein every man the earrings of his prey. And the weight of the golden earrings that he requested was a thousand and seven hundred shekels of gold beside ornaments, collars, and purple raiment that was on the kings of Midian and beside the chains that were about their camels' necks. And Gideon made an ephod thereof and put it in his city, even in Oprah, and all Israel went thither a whoring after it, which thing became a snare unto Gideon and to his house. Turn with me before the message, please, and stand with me again. We sing again number 691. Oh, for a closer walk with God. A calm and heavenly frame, a light to shine upon the road that leads me to the land. Where is the blessedness I knew? When first I saw the Lord, where is the soul-refreshing view of Jesus and His Word? What peaceful hours I then enjoyed. How sweet their memory still, but now I find an aching void 
the world can never fill. Return, O holy dove, return, sweet messenger of rest. I hate the sins that made thee mourn and drove thee from my breast. The dearest idol I have known, whatever that idol be, Help me to tear it from thy throne and worship only thee. So shall my walk be close with God, calm and serene my frame. So purer light shall mark the road that leads me to the land. Thank you and be seated, please. In our text this morning, you'll remember that I spent our entire message on last week unfolding just those first few words in verse 22 when the scripture records, Then the men of Israel said unto Gideon, Rule thou over us. Thou and thy son and thy son's son also. We spent the entire message unfolding just those few words. In that message, I could do no more than to treat the matter of Israel's carnal ambition to have a king. And that was the entire subject matter of my message. Surely we, we, we may well acknowledge that if Israel needed an earthly king, none could have or would have served them better than this man, Gideon. In the words of Matthew Henry, and I quoted it on last week, he used the word plausible. He said it was altogether plausible that Israel would desire Gideon above all others in Israel. He had surely earned this respect and proved his love for them and his faithfulness to Jehovah. And never, never has he proven himself more worthy of that place than now when he declines their offer for a perpetual kingship. 
But nonetheless, then Gideon himself reminds them that however glorious his record, however worthy his person, however stellar his qualifications, Israel already has a king. Verse 23, the Lord shall rule over you. And so Gideon passes this first test with high marks. That's an expression the British use. I like that expression. Gideon passes this first test with high marks and with an impeccable testimony in declining their offer. I loved Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown's defense of Gideon just here because so many commentators spend the bulk of their time commenting on what follows rather than on what took place first. But Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown spoke well of him when they said this, there, that is, Israel's unabounded admiration and gratitude prompted them in the enthusiasm of the moment to raise their deliverer to a throne and to establish a royal dynasty in his house. But Gideon knew too well and revered too piously the principles of the theocracy to entertain the proposal for even a moment. Personal and family ambition was cheerfully sacrificed to a sense of duty. And every worldly motive was kept in check by supreme regard for the divine honor. He would willingly act as judge, yes, but the Lord alone would be the king of Israel. He saw not by their wish to transmit the supreme power to his posterity, but even by their proposal to reserve it to himself during life that they had forgotten God's sovereign right of nominating and also setting aside one whom he would be pleased to employ for a time. What an impeccable testimony does Gideon bear for us here. He passed indeed this first test with high marks. And oh, how I wish that the next four verses were not found in this record. But they are. Verse 24, And Gideon said unto them, I would desire a request of you, that you would give me every man the earrings of his prey. And they answered, We will willingly give them, and the weight of it was 700 shekels of gold, 1,700 shekels of gold. 
and Gideon made an ephod thereof and put it in his city. Oh, how Fawcett said it so very well when he said he had been honored with the vision of the angel of Jehovah there under the tree calling him to be a judge and a deliverer of Israel. His gift had been accepted as a well-pleasing sacrifice. By divine direction, he had built an altar to Jehovah and sacrificed a bullock as a burnt offering with the wood of Asherah after destroying it and the altar of Baal. By thus reestablishing the worship of Jehovah, he had restored God's favor to Israel. And God had granted him several revelations. But now, now, the fatal subtlety of our fallen hearts raises its ugly head and spoils this otherwise majestic and happy scene. Oh, it is if it is as if a bucket of steaming tar were spilled on a Michelangelo masterpiece. The next four verses come to our hearts to sink us and we place our hands over our mouths as we gasp in horror. Oh, how the next scene throws a black woolen blanket over the glorious sunlight of a brilliant and faithful career. One act causes a great eclipse of the sunlight of the stellar career. I often remember it as much for the story as for the source. A man that I used to be acquainted with in Peachtree City, large holder of stock in what was Peachtree National Bank. Man owned his own manufacturing company, Rick Stanziel. I'll never forget one day working for him. He told me a story. I've told it before. It's just a story, but it has a moral. Story of a great bridge builder, famous bridge builder. Built the greatest bridges across this country, all over the nation. Great bridge builder, known for it. But one day, for reasons unknown to anybody, he robbed a bank. Wound up in prison. And for the rest of his life, to the day he died and well beyond it, nobody ever remembered anything about his bridge building. He was known forever as a bank robber. After a great career as a design engineer for bridges. One act. One act. That's why I say this next scene in these four verses throws a black woolen blanket 
over the glorious sunlight of an otherwise brilliant and faithful career. Such is the weight of this scene, not only in the divine history of God's covenant people, but in the lessons to our heart that I cannot bring myself to rush through them in haste, but desire that you might indulge me with patience that we should linger here while, however painful, that pause may be. But first, to begin with, let us just capture the scene. Looking closely at the words and see what was, what has actually happened here. And then the lessons of great value to us all may be gathered up at last. Having unequivocally refused Israel's offer to a throne for himself and his posterity, Gideon makes haste to seize this mood of abounding generosity and launch out to a request which he has every confidence will not be denied to it. He asks only for the gold in the earrings of the men whom they slew in battle. We find in the original Hebrew that so small was his request that the word in the original is in the singular tense. In the singular tense. And Gideon said unto them, I would desire a request. One single thing. Just a singular thing. The word is not compound. It does not refer to a multiple of things, but only one thing. Nothing exorbitant. Nothing prolonged and taxing on their lives. Just this one thing. How small must it all have seemed to everyone at the time. I have a request, he said. Just one request. Just this. Just the earrings. Of all the bounty and praise that you've taken. Just the earrings. That's all I ask. Oh, and we find here in our text that his expectations were not disappointed. Indeed, they were highly exceeded. We will, verse 25, we will willingly give them. <laughs> Was their full-hearted and unanimous answer. We will willingly give them. The Hebrew here is very emphatic. It literally translates giving we will give. They were very desirous, very glad, very interested. 
in granting his request, willingly I say, willingly our King James Bible says, the Hebrew says, giving we shall give. Their hearty and full-hearted giving they intended to do with all the power that they had to perform it. Of a surety, this request will not only be met, but exceeded far beyond his reasonable expectations. Our scripture tells us in verse 26, that in those earrings alone, in his one request, in his singular desire, that alone netted him 17,000 shekels of gold. Uh, sorry, 1,700 shekels of gold came to the amount of Historians tell us that the shekel of gold measured out to an amount of, in our, in our measurements, approximately 73 pounds. 73 pounds of gold. I worked it out, that's 1,168 ounces. And I checked just this morning and updated my notes because I had written this a couple of weeks ago. I did the check the internet and the spot price of gold this morning is $1,756 an ounce. At that rate with 1,168 ounces it was the equivalent of $2,051,008 in modern money in the earrings alone. Not only were they very willing to give the earrings, but they spread out a garment, verse 25 tells us, spread out a garment on the ground, and verse 26 said they did test therein all of these other things, verse 26. Ornaments. The Hebrew word actually means round. Round. It's the same word that was used in verse 21 in this chapter. It refers to that round moon-shaped gold ornament that was commonly used to adorn their camels in those heathen times. To indicate the great wealth of their owners, they would fashion these gold, round moon, crescent moons, and put them on the necks of their camels, and Gideon didn't ask for that, but the men threw that in. And then the Bible tells us additionally they had collars and purple Raiment. The Hebrew word used to identify these colors is very telling. It literally means drops. Because it refers to these, these ornaments that were made where they 
took and sewed into fine fabric very precious stones and they sewed them into the shape of a drop, large drops of jewels, precious jewels sewn into the neck piece. They were called drops. They cast these, they cast these down onto the fabric as well. And then purple raiment. Purple, as you know, was a raiment that was reserved exclusively for royalty because of the rarity of it and the difficulty of making it. That dye and all the process that was required to make a garment fabric out of purple. They cast in the purple, all that purple fabric as well. Purple raiment that was on the kings. They gave it to Gideon. Besides all of that, verse 26 goes on to tell us they wanted Gideon to have the chains that were around the camel's neck. The Hebrew word is the word choke. The verb form of it means to choke. They had these fitted necklaces around these camel's necks that were made out of gold and they put all that in. They wanted Gideon to have it all. All he'd asked for was earrings. Just the earrings. But such is their love and admiration of this man that they're Desire to honor him that they give him all of the earrings, the weight of which is a thousand and seven hundred shekels, and then ornaments and collars and purple raiment and chains that were around the camel's necks. They gave it all to Gideon. All of this, the men of Israel were more than eager that Gideon should have it. These were honorable gifts indeed. And to a man whose honor had more than merited their rich generosity. And then, and then we come to these words in verse 27, which fall like a lightning strike out of a dry summer sky. With terror and destruction, we follow these words, and Gideon made an ephod. And Gideon made an ephod. All these words fall on our ears with the blood-chilling alarm of an air raid siren in the pitch-black streets of London in World War II. These words fall on us. They come with the pathos and sorrow of a death announcement to a young soldier's father and mother. Oh, they come to our ears with the surprise and potential destruction of an autumn hurricane or a tornado. 
What else can I say? What other analogy can I make for you? Analogies fail me. Words fail me to describe the shock that burst forth in the unexpected agony wrapped up in one tiny phrase in the Hebrew. Gideon made an epoch. Only four words in the Hebrew text. Gideon made an ephod. Fawcett commentator drops the full horror of the whole affair right into our laps in just these few words. He said Gideon made no image, nor did he expose the holy court coat, that holy coat for worship. His error lay not in that, but his error lay in his usurping the prerogative of the Aaronic priesthood by assuming the ephod as a permanent instrumentality for consulting Jehovah by means of urine and thumb. Thus he drew away the people, says Fawcett, Thus he drew away the people from the one lawful sanctuary and thereby undermined the theocratic oneness of Israel and paved the way for the nation's apostasy to Baal's idolatry, which is spiritual whoredom after his death. Gideon's pretext whereby he justified his act to himself and others was probably the fact that Jehovah had manifested himself to him directly as he had not to any other ruler since Joshua. And thus he justified his actions. Oh, the horror. The horror. The tragedy. Words fail me to be able to express it. The tragedy that's wrapped up in these simple words and Gideon made an ephod. But wait, maybe my description here has not been altogether the best because I've emphasized the suddenness with which these words fall on our ears. But maybe my title for the message this morning really more accurately describes it. The flaw in the diamond widens. For you see, there have been earlier signs of the flaw. Adershaw surely set us right when he said, in truth, the same spiritual misunderstanding which culminated in Gideon's arrogating to himself the high priestly functions, had appeared almost immediately after that night victory of Jehovah over Midian. He said there was already a crack in the diamond. Adershav said even, even his reply to the jealous wrangling of Ephraim does not sound like the straightforward language of one who had dismissed the thousands of Israel to go to battle with only 300. 
And again, there's what at least looks like petty revenge about his dealings with Succoth and Penuel. While it's also difficult to understand upon what principle other than that of personal retaliation he had made the lives of Zeba and Zalmanna wholly dependent upon their conducts toward his family. And alas, alas, the brief remarks of Scripture about the family life of Gideon after he made the ephod only tend to confirm our impressions. Oh no. Oh no, it's not in verse 27 of chapter 8 that we first glimpse that, glimpse that this man, this faithful man, this honorable man, this great man is like all men just a man and made of clay. It's Bush who helps us this morning better understand what exactly it is that Gideon has done here and why. Bush said an ephod, as you remember, was a vestment covering the shoulders and extending over the breast, somewhat like a coat without sleeves. There were two kinds of them. One, a rich garment peculiar to the high priest, made of blue, purple, scarlet, and twined linen, curiously wrought and embroidered with gold. In this was set the breastplate studded with precious stones and containing the Urim and Thummim, by which the high priest consulted the will of Jehovah. His real motive in this transaction, that is Gideon's, Gideon's real motive in this transaction is not very easily determined. Some think the ephod was designed merely as a commemorative trophy of Israel's deliverance. But if so, it was a very strange one, having no conceivable relation to the event. The more probable opinion, undoubtedly, is that it was intended wholly for religious use. Gideon had at his first calling been instructed to build an altar, altar and offer sacrifices. This perhaps induced him to think himself authorized to officiate in the same way occasionally at his own house. And as he, as he knew that an ephod was a usual appendage in such an office, he might have had one formed and finished in a sumptuous style just for this purpose. If this be the right conjecture, and by the way, I believe it is, personally, if this be the right conjecture, the worship performed was doubtless, doubtless in honor of the true God but it was still unauthorized and improper. Even in his lifetime, it unquestionably had the effect of withdrawing the attention of the people of the east of Jordan 
from the tabernacle at Shiloh and so far tended to pave the way for that decline into positive idolatry which took place after his death. Gideon made an ephod. Oh, the words fall like volcanic lava on our hearts. Gideon made an ephod. Oh, how deep is the pain inflicted on Israel in just those few words. Gideon made an ephod. Edersham again brings us to a fine point when he says that Gideon himself was not proof against another temptation. Oh, he passed the first test with high marks. But he was not proof against this second temptation. God had called him not only to temporal but the spiritual deliverance of Israel. He had thrown down the altar of Baal. He had built up that of Jehovah and offered on it accepted sacrifice. Shiloh was deserted and the high priest seemed set aside. Oprah had been made what Shiloh should have been and Gideon had taken the place of the high priest. It was this temptation that Gideon succumbed when he asked of the people the various golden Ornaments taken this fall from the enemy. The gold so obtained. Nearly 73 pounds. With this Gideon made an ephod, no doubt. No doubt with the addition of the high priestly breastplate and its precious gems of the Urim and Thummim. Here then was the commencement of a spurious worship. Presently Israel went to Oprah. The scripture tells us in that verse painfully. A whoring after it. Gideon himself in his house. It says this thing became to him a snare. Oh listen to me. The combined weight of the chains around Midian's camels. Proved to be a weight too large to be safely hung around the neck of Gideon. You hear me? I say it again. The combined weight of the chains around Gideon's camels proved to be a weight too large to be safely placed around the neck of Gideon. A small request it is. A small request. But a mammoth error to be sure. So then this morning. What are the lessons? Oh the ground is rich with. Rich with. Israel. Went a whoring. After it. Israel went a whoring after it. And this thing became a snare 
to Gideon and his whole house. God willing, next week we'll seek to take up the lessons from this powerful text. Stand with me, if you will, please. Sing with me the words of hymn number 690. How oft, alas, listen to the words, how oft, alas, this wretched heart has wandered from the Lord. How oft my roving thoughts depart, forgetful of his word. Stand with me, please. Oh, alas, this wretched heart has wandered from the Lord. How up my roving thoughts depart, forgetful of His word. Yet sovereign mercy calls, repent, dear Lord, and may I come, my vow in gratitude I mourn. Oh, take the wonder and canst thou wilt thou yet forgive and bid my crimes remove and shall a pardoned rebel live to speak thy wondrous love. Thy pardoning love, so free, so sweet, blessed Savior, I adore. Oh, keep me at thy sacred feet, and let me roll no more.